Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 28. This chapter concludes the voyage of Paul from Caesarea to Rome, and it tells about his climactic encounter with the Jews there and his subsequent resolution to move full steam ahead in his outreach to the Gentiles. When we left off the story in chapter 27, Paul and his companions had been brought safely through a terrible storm and had run their ship aground upon a reef just off an island. And by the grace of God, They had all managed to swim or float ashore. Thus, Luke records, they were all brought safely to land. Thanks be to God. We pick up the story at verse 1 of chapter 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. The people of Malta were Phoenician by ethnicity, and Luke refers to them actually as barbarians in the Greek, translated into our Bibles as natives. The word wasn't necessarily pejorative, it just referred to people who didn't speak Greek. These were simple folks, and they showed simple kindness to the sailors, the soldiers, and in particular to those traveling with the Apostle Paul. Of course, as Luke tells us, they were also a little bit prone to superstition. And when Paul was bitten by a snake, they assumed that the gods must have been intent upon his destruction. But Paul shook off the snake and suffered no harm. Luke doesn't tell us whether this was a miracle or simply a misunderstanding. Perhaps the snake wasn't poisonous after all. Scholars debate as to whether Luke has included this little story as further proof of the divine protection that Paul enjoyed or as further evidence of the desperate need that people have for the life-changing truth of the gospel. Meaning, is this a story about Paul, or is this a story about people who are fickle and superstitious and silly and desperately need to be saved and filled with the light of the gospel? My guess is that it's a bit of both. Verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed." Publius would have been the Roman governor of the island. He would have spoken Greek and Latin, and he would have been obligated to some extent to show hospitality to this party that was traveling on Roman business. 
Nevertheless, Luke comments favorably upon his attitude and disposition towards them. Again, this foreshadows some of the favor that Paul enjoyed within the Gentile world. The Jews, his own people, were chasing him all across the empire. But wherever Paul went among the Gentiles, he was remarkably, even miraculously well-received. Might be worth noticing here also the absence of mechanics and theatrics in his healing of Publius's father. Paul doesn't shout at the fever. He doesn't douse the man in olive oil or chant over him in Hebrew. He just prays for him and lays hands on him and he is healed. When this had taken place, the people of the island gathered about and they too were prayed for and healed. And thus the party was greatly honored, celebrated, and generously provisioned for the next stage of the journey. Verse 11 tells the story. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. Syracuse is a port city on the island of Sicily. Verse 13. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. Regium is the southernmost port on the toe part of Italy. Verse 13 continues. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Purioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Again, Paul is a Roman citizen and unconvicted, and therefore subject to the protections and privileges of the law. He's allowed to rent an apartment or a house and to stay there at his own expense, provided that he was accompanied by a guard. Verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason... Therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. It is interesting to note that Paul's and Luke's interest and focus here at the end of the story is not perhaps what we would have anticipated. Paul is in Rome to testify before Caesar, and yet his immediate concern is to testify before the Jews. It is to them that he makes an immediate appeal. Paul's heart is clearly committed to the conversion of his people. And Luke clearly understands this meeting as representing some kind of climactic turning point. I. Howard Marshall puts it this way, the impression conveyed is that Paul felt throughout his ministry the duty to go first to the Jews, and that it was when they refused the message that he went to the Gentiles. All this fits in with the emotional expression of Paul's feelings regarding his call in Romans 9-11. to 
It also gives a climax to the book in that the missionary program of Acts 1.8 is now brought to a decisive point. The gospel has come to the capital city, and it is proclaimed without hindrance to the Gentiles. The church is on the brink of further expansion, with Paul's hope of reaching Spain in the background and indicating the direction for further advance. The church is thus given its marching orders. Rome is a stage on the way and not the final goal. In principle, it is free to ignore the Jews, at least for the time being, and to go to the Gentiles. Closed quote. So, in a sense, the book of Acts brings the first chapter of the Great Commission story to a close. In the first chapter, the message went first to the people of Israel, and only after that was extended to the Gentiles. But now, with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem having rejected Paul, and as we shall soon see, the Jewish leaders of the Diaspora having rejected Paul, the church enters a new phase— the Great Commission 2.0, you might say. From now on, the focus will be on the Gentiles. Of course, that doesn't mean that there's no hope for the Jews. Paul explores that issue in Romans 9 to 11. There is a Great Commission 3.0 that will include the regrafting in of the Jews and that will result in a great blessing and miraculous end times harvest. But that's a story for another day. The book of Acts takes us only to the end of 1.0. This is the end of the first chapter, we might say. But of course, there are several chapters still to go. But we get ahead of ourselves. The story of Paul's climactic meeting with the Jews in Rome is narrated now, beginning at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen." Paul quotes to them here from the prophet Isaiah. In essence, Paul stands in solidarity with the prophet Isaiah. He says, just like him, I've been sent to preach to people who simply will not understand. It's, it's not that you can't understand, he says. It's that you won't understand. You have hardened yourself to the point where you cannot see that which ought to be as obvious to you as the hand in front of your face. David Peterson says here, if those to whom the Spirit spoke through the prophet were ancestors of the Roman Jews, the implication is, like fathers, like children. The rejection of Isaiah and his message in the 8th century BC was followed by the rejection of Jesus and his message. 
Paul then shared with other Christian preachers in the rejection of Jesus by his own people. Both prophet and people are caught in a tragic situation, for the prophet is commanded to speak to a people that cannot understand a seemingly hopeless task. Paul assumes this prophetic task. Closed quote. Again, Luke portrays Paul as a sort of New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament prophets. Paul is a, is a New Testament Isaiah, and like Isaiah, he has been commanded to preach to a people who will not understand. Thus, for the foreseeable future, the gospel will go to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Verse 30 says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the end of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, it certainly isn't the end of what we'd like to know. It seems fairly clear that Luke wrote this account while staying with Paul in Rome awaiting his trial before Caesar. Whether he intended to write more or whether he intended to write a second volume or not, of course, we'll never know. As for what happened to Paul, church history says that he made a brief defense and then was discharged. It seems that his accusers never made the trip to Rome and the charges against him were dropped. Clement and Eusebius both say that Paul was released and resumed his missionary travels, taking the gospel to the westernmost parts of the Roman Empire. He was then rearrested and transported back to Rome. It was at that time that he wrote what we believe to have been his last letter, the letter known to us as 2 Timothy. Shortly thereafter, he was taken outside the city and executed by beheading on a milepost on the Ostian Way in or around the year A.D. 68. But the book of Acts is not a biography of Paul. It is the story of the spread and triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the story of how this message of the kingdom was preached first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, and in all the world. That is the story that Luke promised to tell us. And by the grace of God, that is the story that we've been told. The implicit challenge now is for each of us to pick up the mantle, to write our own Acts 29, you might say to preach to our Jerusalem, to do as they did on Pentecost, to come down the stairs and out the front door of our houses and to preach the gospel to the people in our streets, in our neighborhoods, and in our towns. And then to branch further out and farther still, even to the ends of the world. That's the challenge. That is our mandate. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches.
Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile one is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.